Welcome to the first episode of the Climate Change Podcast Series, brought to you by the CFA UK Climate Change Content Working Group. I'm Thomas Streeter of Streeter Research. Today we have John Tehan, a Value Investment Portfolio Manager at RWC Partners, to talk to me about value investing and climate change. Hi, John. How are you doing? Hi, Thomas. Very good. Thank you. Good, good. So, as everybody's aware, we've seen this massive explosion of ESG investing over the last year or so. Why do you think that is? Well, firstly, you're absolutely right. It's been a phenomenal year, particularly 2020 was an incredible year. Bernstein estimates that 200 billion flowed into ESG strategies, and at the same time, 100 billion flowed out of out of um, all active funds. Then we had ESG strategies performing very well because they're highly correlated with growth strategies. So you had a combination of strong inflows and good performance, and that obviously gave the, the, the strategies even more traction. But in the wider uh, space, we've had incredible developments as well. We've had nearly a doubling of, of, of companies declaring net zero targets. So it really took off. And I guess the real question is, why was 2020 so pivotal? And I think it's a combination of factors. You know, I would say, one, there's increasing regulation. So things like the EU taxonomy and the SFDR have really come on investors' radar. They've really been putting in a lot of work to that. I think there's also just a greater recognition of the problem in wider society. And this really combines with, with COVID. And COVID gave, gave ESG an unexpected boost, if you like. You know, there was a real sense of solidarity. Um, companies and investors were talking about looking after customers first and employees first and small suppliers first, rather than shareholders. So we saw dividends being cut. And then for executives, we saw bonuses disappear. And the mantra really became about building back better. So it was a phenomenal year from, from that perspective. Okay. And how, how are you yourself or your company as, as value investors how are you how are you sort of taking on this whole new environment? Well, I think for us in, as value investors, it's it's particularly interesting and challenging. If you think about those flows going into ESG strategies and they're going into growth strategies, that's a huge wake-up call for all value managers. You know, either we really engage in these issues or we will find it very difficult to attract capital. Now, I think there's a risk for those existing ESG strategies that are correlated with growth that you might have future disappointment around performance because valuations are quite high to begin with. But for us, we really have to think, well, if we're going to win capital for our own business and also for the companies we invest in, we really have to engage in this issue. We really have to become genuine about, about integrating ESG, but even going further. So for us, it's about becoming impact investors. That's absolutely, absolutely crucial. Okay, and um, I mean that sounds to me like very good stewardship. But why, as a value manager, would you know would you have an advantage potentially um, against other types of investors who who you know who are exercising their you know their stewardship activities, and they might argue that they are also impact investors. So what what, what how is a value investor different? I think firstly, you know, to, to kind of step back, ESG investing should already be very much part of of what investors do. It should be part of the, of the process. In the past, it has been, but just using different terminology and to a different degree. If you think in the past, most people looked at governance as the most important thing. 
And of course, governance is, is centrally important to how investors look at companies and how companies behave. If you've got good governance, it generally tends to lend itself to better uh, product governance and, and better management around environmental issues. If you've got management that perhaps is in a hurry, um, they grow too fast, they undermine their balance sheet, they're also willing to take other risks. You know, they might take more environmental risks. So these issues have been around for a long time, but they haven't been, I guess, described uh, in, in, in the terms that we talk about today. And the emphasis would be different. I think what really has come to the fore in the last number of years has been both S and E within the ESG. If you think of E, you know, the existential risk of climate change has really become, or people have really become aware of it. You know, it has really come to the fore. We're really now realizing the science and, and the damage that, that carbon emissions are doing. And on the social aspect, you know, supply chains. We, you know, globalization has been around for quite a while. It's been developing. But I guess to a degree, we're only now understanding lots of the issues that globalization brought, how long supply chains bring, bring their risks in terms of modern slavery, um, etc. For a value investor, well, you can turn things around and you can go, if you want to have an impact, do you invest in a fund that to a degree has already a very high ESG rating, you know, and that could be because they follow an exclusionary approach. Or if you really want to make an impact, if you invest in companies that have challenges, that may be high emitters, well, that's really where you can make an impact. And the example I would give you is, say, Dong, which is the, the Danish oil and gas company. Today it's called Orsted. You know, it is now rated as by corporate knights as the, the world's most sustainable energy company. Well, what's the greater impact you can make? Would it be investing in the likes of Dong, so the, the, its previous incarnation, when it, it still had coal within its portfolio? Or is it now investing in Orsted, where you know, the, the, they have got rid of most of those assets and, and, and the transformation has been largely complete? So I would say, if you can invest in a Dong and convert it and transfer it or, or help it in the process of becoming an Orsted, you, you're creating much more impact. Uh, you have a, a greater positive impact on the, on, on the environment. And that really for value investors is a core offering, if you like, because we are invested in more older economy uh, companies that tend to have more sustainability issues. So we can be a greater force for, for change, if you like, than what might already be quite, as, as I said, quite a high, uh, highly rated ESG fund. Right, interesting. And I think this whole podcast series on climate change will really help people who are looking at that E and ESG, as you mentioned. So what's your view on divestment? And, and at what point would you, you know, maybe potentially have to give up if you're trying to you know, talk to a company and they're not taking on, they're not taking sort of seriously your concerns? Divestment is, is, is a very complex issue. And I guess there's, there's different ways to look at it. I would say, firstly, an investor has to be very clear with why they might divest from, from companies. Because once you divest, you, your influence in that company is, is over, if you like. You've, you've lost the chance to speak with management. You've lost the chance to vote at an AGM. So I think you need to be very clear about what you're trying to achieve. Um, you may have an exclusionary uh, mandate, and therefore you have to sell out companies that have exposure to, to certain risks or perhaps if a certain amount of revenue coming from something like coal. 
But that said, if you don't have that exclusionary mandate, well, then it's better to try and engage. Because if you think of what investment does, it simply passes the shares or bonds that you have onto another investor. Now, that investor, if you're doing it because of ethical reasons, is probably going to be less, less ethical. And that's really what we're seeing is that assets get passed from, from, from more ethical or more concerned investors to less concerned investors are very much out of the public eye. And there they can't be seen or the influence wanes. So I think we as investors really have to think carefully about divestment. You know, it's the easier route, particularly for, for the communication uh, purposes. It's easier just to go down the divestment route. It's, it's commercially probably the, the smarter thing to do than to make the case for staying invested and to try and change the company. And of course, change is not gonna happen overnight. Change is a multi-year and, and potentially a multi-decade process. So you need to be able to explain that to your investors and your own investors and hope that they have the patience to stay with you in that long road. So what do you think sort of other parts of the investment management universe, supply chain, you know, what, what roles does say index companies have or, or asset owners have in terms of, you know, helping the asset manager come up with a good strategy to, to help with the whole climate change situation without leaving sort of alpha on the table by giving up, you know, by, by divesting or losing optionality from, from just mm. dis disregarding many investments that, that people just might not like? Well, I think to go back to the first part of your question, I think index companies, you know, this is a particularly challenging one because you know, if you're a, a, a passive investor, how do you deal with things like divestment? How do you deal with risks within your portfolio? Do you engage? So, in fact, you become, you, know, you, you remain a passive investor, but active engagement. Is there, is there a contradiction there that they will not be able to, to solve, if you like? You know, what is, you know, even though we would say you remain invested, you still have the ability to threaten or there is the, the potential of divestment there, even if you never trigger it. With a passive company, how do they elevate or, or, or escalate their, their engagement? You know, do they do they go together, passive investing and active engagement? So I think that's a very very difficult one. I would even go further a little bit on the on the divestment issue because I think it's important to think about the companies that, that we might be forcing to divest on, and and this goes back to numerous companies having forced to divest their coal assets over the years. And you know, the, the management are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to trying to um, improve their businesses, and it actually might be the right thing to do for them on a company basis from a financial perspective. But what we've seen is those assets have been, have been passed onto, as I said earlier, less ethical hands. You know, and, and there's two problems here. One is you know, they're going out of sight, um, you can't have influence, but also because they're being sold and there's not a lot of buyers for them. What we've seen is that some of the private equity buyers that have, have picked them up for peppercorn amounts are playing a tails they win, heads the taxpayer loses because you know, if if carbon prices are, are say sorry, if, if if coal prices go up, these companies benefit from holding the assets. If coal prices go down and demand goes down, well, these companies um, may go bust, and it's up to the government, particularly in Australia, to take care of the cleanup costs afterwards. You would have been better off leaving those assets on, you know, within a large company that had the balance sheet to do the rehabilitation afterwards. So that's something that we we very much need to be. I guess, to be aware of. Yeah, I think a lot of the big mining companies have, I don't, want, I don't want to use the word panic, but, you know, panicked, but 
it seems like they have just very quickly decided to sell their mining, their, their coal assets. Whereas, you know, actually what you're saying is we need a more, uh, a more nuanced look at, you know, look at looking at the, look at the strategy. So that, I think that, I think that's a very good point. Yeah. And, and the thing is, the thing is, Thomas, is that with, for a company, whether it's right to divest or not, there's a financial angle. It may be, well, I say we shouldn't have them divesting. It may be from a financial perspective, they should divest because these assets could become stranded. And therefore, they need to make the assessment if the value that they can extract by selling the asset today is greater than the cash flows that will come from those assets as they run them down. It may be the right thing for those companies to divest. I guess the, the nuance of the point is if you're doing it for ethical reasons, you need to understand really what that means. And what about in the case of, you know, you mentioned Dong and, and Allstead. That was, a, that was an example of a successful trans, transition, but sort of history shows that a lot of transitions, major transitions, basically go wrong or destroy destroy shareholder value. So, you know, what is the, you know, how, how as an investor do you, do, do you look at a company who might be going through a, a multi-decade, you know, net zero target by 2050, and they're going to really radically transform their business, and, you know, their business might become more complex in the next 10, 20 years as they shift strategy potentially that could investors might need to put a conglomerate discount on that or, or or think you know have some sort of discount due to the complexity of that situation what, what, what's your opinion on you know there are a number of big companies doing this uh what, what's your opinion on on this kind of uh you know restructuring or, or you know shifting business strategy you're absolutely right and orsted actually is a fascinating case study if you go back and you look at the transition, they, they, they began it back in 2009, 2008, 2009. They thought it was going to take 30 years. And they were owned by the Danish government at the time. And they came, they very closely came a cropper in 2012 because their, the, the, um, the gas prices in the US dropped. It put pressure on electricity prices in, in Europe. They, at that point, were, were building out their um, offshore wind very aggressively. And therefore, their balance sheet was quite weak. And therefore, it nearly it nearly caused them to default. They had a credit down um, downgrade at the time. Now, imagine if they were a public company, the kinds of trouble they would they would, would have been in, where the share price would have been, how many shareholders or investors would have stuck with them. But I think there's a few important lessons that we can draw from it. One, these transitions take a long time. Now, they happen. They, they thought it was going to take 30 years. It's taken 15 years. Part of it was. The stress, the financial stress they suffered in 2012 forced them to sell assets quicker than they originally intended to. And therefore, they, they, they were selling, they were selling um, fossil fuel plants. Um, what we need to think about today when we are investing in companies and thinking, are we going to stay with them through the transition, is you go back to that. It's the balance sheet. right? You've got to make sure the balance sheet is right, that they've got the cash flows in the balance sheet. To, to get there. And also, we, you know, if, if you really want them to do the transition, perhaps we have to be patient as well at the speed that this happens. Because if you aggressively invest, if you go too fast, you may very well undermine the entire project. You know, and that's not sustainable, if you like. You roll back and you go, well, sustainability, one of the central pillars of sustainability is a strong balance sheet. So when we look at companies, we go, is their balance sheet strong enough to get them to make this transition? Now, there are other parts that are going to be painful. And if you think of the oil and gas companies last year, where there was some very large dividend cuts, that was also to protect the balance sheet. 
and to have another report prioritized how they will spend their cash. Some of it will be transitioning the business. Some of it was to make sure that they can repair the balance sheets after the last year. So that's, that's a central thing. You want to see if management is really committed. You want to understand where the transition is going, how long it's going to take, and what kind of business they might have at the end of it. You know, I came back to Dong and Orsted. Orsted is a very high margin business now. You know, it's, it's a better quality business. That's what we're seeing with the energy companies is that they're transitioning to higher margin. Often it is, say, from, from upstream to downstream where they're looking at convenience and mobility or they're looking at services to customers. That's higher margin, more stable business. And therefore, you know, that's an attractive proposition once they've got the balance sheet and the cash flows to get there. And I'm just curious about going back to Dong and Posted one, you know, for one more time. Did they have to change the structure of the management and the board or was the original uh, sort of um, management team able to, to see through this, this, uh, this transformation? There was a change in management in 2012, but that was not because of the transformation. They, they were, you know, they have spoke about it themselves very much about how internally, you know, it was a challenge. If you think back in 2008, when they set out in this path, they were one of the, the um, world leaders in coal technology and in coal-fired power plants. If you think about all the people within the company whose careers would have been built in that, their knowledge and skills was focused on that. So, of course, there would have been pushback within, within parts of the company. That's part of the transformation. So while we can all look back through rose-tinted glasses now, you know, if you talk to management, it would have been a very trying time um, to get the entire company going in the right direction. And I'm sure that's what many companies are struggling with today. As, as, as people are trying to make the transition, there are other stakeholders that are not so keen because of, you know, as I said, their skill sets, et cetera, which is more linked to the fossil fuels. Mm. And, and as an investor, you know, one of the, one of the stakeholders, and going back to your point about the influence uh, that you have with, with uh, the board and the management. So, you know, this is, a, this is kind of a form of activist investing so I guess, so, um, you know, how, how, what kind of things do you, are you looking at when you are making your, you know, making decisions around about how influential or activist you want to be with respect to specific uh, situations? Yes, it, well, it's, it, you know, this is what's very interesting is that this is something that we're all learning to do in a way because these issues are really coming to the fore. So when we think about engaging on, on climate issues, we look across the portfolio and we think, where are the greatest exposures we have? You know, so in the last year or so, it's been very much focused on carbon emissions. And then you know, it's a multi-stage process. Firstly, just understand the problem. See, so you, you look at the, the documentation that they publish, you speak to other people that are expert on the issue, and then you engage with the company and, and dig deeper and deeper so that you understand the issue. And at that point, then you can you can step back and you can go, well, what is fair to ask of these companies? But you also think outside of that, what is society doing? What is society demanding? Where do we need to go to? And what are the risks around carbon pricing, et cetera? So what we look for to begin with is a commitment to net zero, to be aligned with Paris. But that's only a very small step to begin with. If you think about that as 2050, it's a long ways away. Then you've got to think, well, management that is currently in place, they won't be around to be judged in 2050. So we need some goals before that. So then we look at 2030 and, you, and you're looking for ambitious goals around that point. 
And then you've got to think about the plans themselves. You know, can you can you trust them? Are are, are they reliable? And that's what you, why we need science-based um, targets. That's very important. So that's another step that we will look for companies to take. Now that's a work in progress because SBTI has not developed the guidance for all this, the relevant sectors as yet. But the first step is get companies to commit to, to net zero, then have them have their plans validated independently um, on a science-based way outside of that. There are other things we can then look for. We can look at making sure that incentives are aligned with those goals. So incentives drive behavior. So if we can get incentives aligned with that, then we can see progress being made, particularly in the next decade. We can also look at the board and to make sure that the right people are on the board, if you like, people that can challenge management, that have got the expertise to challenge management. That's very important. Then there are other things we can look at. You can look at looking for a say on climate. Some companies are introducing um, these kinds of annual votes where it gives shareholders an opportunity to express their view on, on, on the plans that companies have. And those plans can be put forward every year, but then you may, you know, you may have a schedule of updating the plans every three years or so, because that gives, gives management time, not only to give you future plans, but to execute on the plans that they have. So that's the, that's the challenge for us as well, is that to understand when to give management space or when to push them on, on, on different issues. And that's what really activism has to be. It's constantly monitoring, speaking with other shareholders, speaking with stakeholders, um, or, or people that are more expert on the issue, because we are generalists. You know, while we will, we will study this a lot, in the end of the day, we're looking across sectors. So that's why it's a big mandate for portfolio managers to, to, to take on, to really be an activist voice in, in, on these issues. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the AGM season. I think there's a number of shareholder votes coming up, which will be really interesting to see what happens. So um, going back to the disclosures, I think, um, so it sounds like, you know, companies that have better disclosures will be at an advantage, um, you know, in terms of being more attractive to, to certain investors such as yourself. So do you think, uh, for example, the TCFD recommendations have, have been particularly useful so far? Absolutely. You know, data is key. And so there's a certain amount of data coming out. And within the environment with, with Scope 1 and Scope 2, you know, that is that is probably the, the best data that we have. Even within that, there are challenges. You're trying to figure out where the boundaries should be and are companies measuring this data in the same way? Can you can you compare companies? But there's we're still so far away on the data issue. That's really what's going to happen over the next few years is that we'll figure out what data we need. We'll figure out where to get the data and companies are going to appear to offer that data. Because really, if you want to have an impact, if you want to be activist, you have to monitor how things progress. So it's one thing on the environment because you, it's, it's clear on, on emissions that they're starting to publish this. What about in other aspects on, on social issues? We need to be able to track progress, both at a company level and also at a portfolio level. You know, so when we then engage with a company, we can see over a number of years, yes, you have been making progress. At a portfolio level, we can show our investors, yes, we have had an impact. We are a fund that focuses on impact. They can deliver that. Here's what you can. Here's data they can they can show you what we have we have achieved or the, or the stocks that you're investing have have done. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm just curious because activism has been traditionally associated with sort of U.S. investors, uh, you know, historically. 
Um, and it, it's relatively sort of new in Europe, or we also we get a lot of pushback from company boards when there is an activist, you know, sort of a public activist situation. Obviously, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that we, we don't hear about. But, uh, you know, do you think that uh, being sort of more activist in, 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 in Europe is, is going to cause sort of more friction or, or is a lot of it just going on behind the scenes and companies are sort of uh, taking it on in a, in a sort of more you know, responsible way? Yeah, it's a broad spectrum. I think if you, if, you, if you go back to the UK Corporate Governance Code and the Stewardship Code in 2020, you're getting, you're getting pressure from two sides. Companies are being forced to engage with shareholders more and investors are being forced to engage with companies more. So there is a bit of um, a convergence there where we're both doing, looking to achieve the same thing, which is to, to engage more. So we're getting many more companies coming to us to look to engage. Often it's on remuneration and, and often it's on environment. So you've, you've got the opportunity to engage there in, in a, a neutral framework, if you like. It's not being forced on the companies. I would also say that we would very much focus it on, on being constructive talking to companies, understanding where they're at, feeding back to them why it's important for them to move on the targets and goals they've set themselves. You know, it's a very interesting conversation that you can have with a mining executive or an energy executive and you say, I want to keep invested with you, but I'm getting pressure from my investors because they don't want to be invested in carbon emitting companies. You've got to help yourself here and help us here. You've got to try and move your targets along. This is what's expected. So that's a very constructive approach and that's what we're looking for you you want to stay constructive on this as far as you can you you, you really want to work with management and you know, that's where i see this going for the most part is in a very constructive environment now that's not to say that we won't be demanding but you know you're comparing us activism to european activism i think we would very much be in the in the constructive tradition if you like okay and you mentioned mining and energy which you know, this seems these two sectors have taken the sort of the brunt of the sort of you know the media attention in terms of carbon emissions and climate change. Um, you know, is there is there any way to look at other sectors, perhaps you know, sort of closer to demand, or you know, how, how do you look at this across you know the broad the broad spectrum of you know the equity universe that you look at, rather than just energy and, and, and materials, which which typically get sort of the brunt of the attention right now. Yeah, you're right. It's interesting, isn't it? When you think of scope three, what does that mean? It means we're holding energy companies accountable for all the emissions from, much of my term, downstream. Of course, that comes back to uh, we need government action here. You know, you, you have to have government action on things like carbon pricing and carbon tax to, to change the incentives. It, it won't all be solved by the energy companies changing their behavior. And you're absolutely right. When you when you go to other sectors, they also need to help. An interesting one is, is say, the, the food industry. You know, if you think about food producers, food retailers onto hospitality, well, if you think of food waste, that's an issue. And you can link it back to the environment because 6% of global emissions arise from food waste, right? So it's quite a large part. And there's two things that, well, there's different angles with food waste. First, you think of those, those emissions, but you also think of the land that's required to grow the food that we waste. A third of the food that we produce just goes to waste or is lost in, in, in the supply chain. That's incredible, not just from those emissions, but also from the, the land mass it takes up, which is the size of China. Think of the issues around biodiversity and deforestation. 
So you're absolutely right. It's not just mining and energy. It's all these other sectors that are further down the chain or, or closer to the consumer that we need to work on because then they can work back up to, to, to the source. And particularly if we've got you know, population growth, think of that and the impact on food if we're going to continue the same level of waste. So you know, that's, that's an example of what we can absolutely work on. Okay, really interesting. And I, I, I want to know a bit more about this series. You've been instrumental in bringing this series, this climate change podcast series together. So what, what, what's the reason? What, what, what's, uh, you know, what's the series about? What, what, what's the sort of um, objective of, of this series? Well, I think we're all in a, in a road to discovery here. We're all learning more. And really, you know, working with the CFA UK on this, it's, it's very much thinking, what are the questions we're asking ourselves as portfolio managers? And if I'm asking them of myself, then other people are asking the same questions. So it's, what do I need to know about this sector? Just like food waste. You know, one exciting podcast that I'm looking forward to is with Mark Curtin, CEO of the Felix Project. He's helping to solve food waste. He's working in, 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 a, in a food rescue charity. So if you're thinking about things from different angles, and ultimately we're all trying to do the same thing, but it's helping us to think through these problems. One, what is the problem? How should we think about it? And two, how should we try and go about having an impact, a positive impact? How should we engage with company management? Mark can help us to, to, to think about how we should engage with food retailers when we're talking to that management. What are they doing about food waste? We, we will be better educated. So that's really what I'm. What I think the 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 central idea of the podcast is to help educate us as portfolio managers or analysts or other people that are operating within within the ESG area um, and, and engaging with companies or doing the analysis. How can we do a better job? Sounds great. I'm really looking forward to the uh, the next the next few episodes. So thanks very much, John, for your time, and um, I'll talk to you soon. Great. Thank you very much, Thomas. Pleasure talking to you.